This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at afsp.org slash talkawaythedark. I bet you didn't expect that music at the top of the Reset podcast. I'm your host, Padme Amidala. Kidding, it's me, Sasha Ann Simons. What have we here? You might remember those iconic words from Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. The line was delivered by Lando Calrissian, the one-time gambler and con artist who came to be the administrator of Cloud City. And Lando... One of the most beloved characters in the Star Wars franchise, well, he was played by none other than legendary actor Billy D. Williams. Hello, what have we here? Welcome, I'm Lando Calrissian. I'm the administrator of this facility. And who might you be? Leia. Welcome, Leia. Now, Billy D. Williams will be in Chicago this week for a WBEZ event, talking about his life and the career that took him from Broadway to a galaxy far, far away. He tells the story in his new memoir, What Have We Here? Portraits of a Life. Ahead of the event, I had a chance to talk with Williams, and it seemed to me that the warmth and charisma that comes across in Lando Calrissian, that's Williams himself, he still got it at 86 years young. Here's our full interview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So I want to start with something that you mentioned toward the end of your book. Uh, This is a recurring dream that you said that you've been having lately, where you're you're saying goodbye to friends, you're walking to your car, but you can't find the car, and that's got you lost and confused. So uh, can you tell us more about how you're interpreting that dream and, and what you think it means? I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do have that reoccurring dream, and it's been going on for a number of years now. I, I don't understand it. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> yeah, you said it has you uh, unsettled and thinking about your legacy, which my feeling is is sort of part of the reason we're here, right? Is is that maybe something that led you down the path of writing a memoir? Well, you know, I'm at I'm at that age now. I think you know when you know you start thinking in terms of legacy. You know, what do I say about my life? One thing, you know, when we're questioning our lives. We get so mired these days in particular in the you know, one thing or the other. It's either black or it's white. Mm-hmm. But my life has been a very eclectic kind of life. And my life is always sort of incorporates everything and everybody. I mean, I see myself as the, uh, the full spectrum of colors. And to me, that 
gives me a real sense of creativity and makes life a lot more fun yeah. rather than choosing one thing or the other. Yeah, to that end, I mean, that, that fun comes across when reading your memoir, right? Your, your charm comes across, also your, your carefree sense of humor. Uh, and I think that in writing the story of our lives, other people might find themselves in a somber space and reliving struggles and traumas. But with you, we're getting how much fun you had uh, on this journey. So, so is, is that right? Has it been more laughs than tears? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. You know, I, I, I think of myself as a walking absurdity, which is a good place to start. <laughs> a walking I mean, absurdity. Yeah, you know, it's it's like I, I put no, there's no period to my life. It continues to go on and on and on and on. You've had quite the life uh, so far, you know, with, with casts of, of the most colorful characters. I'm talking about everyone from James Caan to James Baldwin. But it all started from a young age, right? You walk into the elevator in your family's building, and there's a, a famous jazz singer, Sarah Vaughn. Meanwhile, your mom just happens to be friends with the Lena Horn. Was that just part of the glamour of New York back in the 40s and 50s? Well, I never thought of it when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, for me, it was not glamour. I mean, yeah, I guess it was glamour, but I didn't think about it in terms of glamour. Well, Lena Horn was... My mom, they grew up together, and his her daughter used to, uh, when Lena was on the on the road, uh, she would uh, stay with us at, at our uh, house or, or apartment. Mm. Uh, but uh, as far as everybody else is concerned, there was a building that my uncle lived in and my godmother, and uh, that's where I remember seeing uh, Sarah Vaughan and Hazel Scott. Yes. They both were in that building. Ever since I was a child, I mean, starting with uh, a Broadway musical written by Kurt Vile. Yes. Uh, At seven and, years old, you were only a yes. child. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, and being surrounded with those people was just something because of my mother, who was an aspiring, uh, she had dreams of being a movie star and she studied opera for many years. Mm -hmm. And my her brother, my uncle Bill, I mean, he was uh, in show business. Uh, he was a classical musician. I don't know. It's just things that was just very much a part of my life. I, I guess I, I took it for granted. Well, yeah, I, I think maybe some of that connectedness is part of what pulled you to this, this life on stage. But I, I've heard you joke about uh, when referencing that gig when you were only seven years old, you said, I cried my way back to the stage because I, I loved it so much. I cried well, my mom, way mom, back. Well, mommy, mommy took me to the audition. She was working for uh, Ben Boyer and Max Gordon. They were producers and Broadway managers at the Lyceum Theater. And she was working as a uh, elevator operator. And then uh, they were planning to do this musical, uh, the Court Vile musical, uh, The Fire Brown of Florence. But anyway, they, they, they needed a little boy for the part that I played, which was the page boy. And I went and auditioned. And I walked across stage one time, walked across stage two times, and they said, fine, that's great. Yeah. But I, I, I was smitten, and I wanted to do it the third time. And they wouldn't let me do it, so I started crying. <laughs> and I 
cried my way into show business. You cried your way in. Well, that those tears worked. <laughs> they worked. Uh, I loved in your book how you mentioned, you said your approach to life has always been more of an artful improvisation. What do you mean exactly? Unplanned. You know, if I say I want to go right, something always tells me, no, no, Billy, no, 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 no. Go left. It's going with instincts. Mm-hmm. Uh, allowing myself to go with my instinct. So it becomes a wonderful improvisational exercise. I think some folks would uh, be surprised to learn that painting was another love of yours. And and it's yeah, what you went it, to school for. Yeah, I mean, I, my sister and I, my twin sister, lady, uh, she and I were very, very good artists in school. We went to music at Art High School in New York. And well, she went off to NYU, and I got a scholarship to a school, the National Academy of Design and Fine Arts. I spent two years there painting. I was uh, nominated for a Guggenheim. Wow. But so the world of, the cre- of creativity has always been my life. I don't really know any other life. Do you think that uh, you, you might still make a book dedicated to your, your paintings? Like, Do we have a Billy D. Williams coffee table picture book in our future? Yeah, I've been working on it for like about 20 years or more. Really? Yeah, that, that's the next thing I'm going to do. I'll finish anyway. It's telling my life through my painting. That would and be amazing. Like, yeah, it, it will be amazing, actually. Stored away, I have over 300 paintings. Wow. So I have a lot to draw from. So, Mr. Williams, you have played more than 100 movie and TV roles in your career. But we do have to talk about one that really stands out. I'm talking about Star Wars Lando Calrissian. Now, when J.J. Abrams asked if you were ready to take the cape up again for for the film Rise of the Skywalker, at the time you said, J.J., I've never not been Lando. So do you think that that that's why the character has been such a pop culture icon? Because Lando's really you. Yeah, well, I I kind of uh, developed that whole character the moment I heard his uh, name. Uh, Calrissian. I said, my goodness, Calrissian is an Armenian name. Right. And I said, my goodness, let me see what I can do with that. And then, of course, when I got the cape, that kind of solidified the whole adventure in creating this character. You know, I wanted to make him bigger than life. I wanted him to be more than just a black character. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to take it uh, further and make it much more interesting. Yeah. I know know that you're also often asked about what it's like working in the industry as a black man, especially over the decades uh, and about the obstacles that you've had to overcome throughout the years. Uh, You've said, though, that you never like to focus on those struggles and and on racial differences, especially when it came to this this franchise. Right. You, You mentioned it yourself, an Armenian last name, and you had to sort of make it your own. Why was this your preferred approach? And and how do you think that line of thinking where, you know, I'm not going to focus on the struggles how did that contribute to your staying power? The whole idea of staying pissed, pissed off is not something that's desirable for me. And everybody, we all have our, our difficulties, uh, no matter who we are. And certainly, I understand and have experienced those difficulties, but uh, I don't let any of it get in my way. I take the negative and make it a positive. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. I don't like, that's the other thing, I don't like giving advice. But this is what I've done with my own life. And, and and you're an inspiration. Just sharing that, someone is going to resonate with that. Um, my personal favorite of yours, when I think of films, it's, it's got to be Lady Sings the Blues. Now, this is, uh, for those who aren't familiar, this tells the story of singer Billie Holiday's life. And it had you co-starring uh, with uh, Diana Ross. 
you have credited that movie as the one to change your career. And in the book, you actually write, quote, I saw enormous potential in this project, obviously for Diana, but also for me to present a black man in a way that I hadn't ever seen in the movies, end quote. Was that a lot of pressure? No, there's no pressure. <laughs> no, I I always uh, saw myself in a kind of a romantic lead character, playing a romantic character, and I love romance. But uh, and I, the kind of movies I used to love uh, back in those years were sophisticated comedies with people like uh, Myrna Loy and, and Melvin Douglas and uh, William Powell. And mm. I love that kind of stuff, and so I always saw myself as a romantic lead. And uh, I accomplished that in a way that no man of my little brown-skinned boy like me had ever accomplished. What do you think was different about your career after this role? Because you said it changed your career. Well, yeah, I became this uh, matinee idol, so to speak. But, you know, when you have women fainting in front of your face. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, it it said it all. Very interesting. What was that like for you? Women fawning all over you. Well, women have always fallen all over. (laughs) (laughs) I'll leave it there. Uh, 100 plus roles later, do you think there are any that escaped you? Like, is there any role that you still would love to play, but you just haven't had the chance? Well, I always thought I always wanted to do uh, uh, Duke Ellington's life. I thought Mm -hmm. I was the only one that could really pull it off because I understand that sensibility. But it never happened. There's still time. We'll see. Who knows? (laughs) I met him a couple of times in my life, so and uh, mm. he was quite intriguing, very charming. And that kind of charm I don't see with a lot of the young men today. Yeah, charm is used to describe it, you, that's for sure. It's, it, it's a kind of inherent charm. Yeah. I want to go back to your childhood for just a moment. You mentioned briefly you were born a twin. What are some of your fondest memories growing up with your twin sister? Oh, Lady was my, my, my Florence Nightingale. Anything happened to me? If I scraped my knee, uh, she was always there to to take care of me. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, She was wonderful, my sister. And she, uh, even the day she was dying, uh, she just worried about me. And she she was a Jehovah Witness, and she was really upset over the fact that she couldn't convert me. (laughs) (laughs) She tried. Always praying for me. Sounds like she was acting more like your big sister. She was eight minutes older, (laughs) and she took full advantage. You know, speaking of your family, I love that even in your late 80s, you still call your parents mommy and daddy, and you're their sonny. Yeah. Yeah. You're their sonny. (laughs) You know, they were very hardworking. You talk about that all the time. So you were raised by your maternal grandmother. The family, though, was very richly cultured and had interest in opera, as you mentioned, and visual art and, and, and more. Your mother had big dreams for you, would you say the mission was accomplished? Oh, I I lived out everything she wanted in her life, and as far as the show business is concerned. Yeah. But my grandmother, we all, my father, my mother, mommy, daddy, grandma, uh, they raised us. Yeah. It was the whole family, that the whole unit. What do you want to say to your mommy and daddy now? Thank you. Uh, And I miss them dearly. They're watching down on you, for sure. Billy D. Williams, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, and you have a blessed day.
This episode of the Reset Podcast was produced by Meha Ahmed and edited by Dan Tucker and mixed by Micah Gason. If you are a sucker for a great interview with an entertainer, scroll back a bit in our podcast feed. Not long ago, I had a chance to sit down with rapper and activist Common to talk about his new book, a lot of books lately, I know. That one is called And Then We Rise, A Guide to Loving and Taking Care of Self. Now, it was fun to talk with one of the top voices in hip-hop about everything from his diet to his morning meditation routine to how he stays grounded while touring the world. I hope you'll check it out. And if you come to Reset more for the news, well, we've got that too. Our next episode, dropping tomorrow morning, goes into detail on key congressional races in the Chicago area, including an effort to unseat Congressman Danny Davis from his seat on the west side of Chicago, a seat that he's held for more than 27 years. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.